0: Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here today. Uh, We are very thankful for many visitors that we have with us. We're encouraged by your presence and hope that the the things that we study today will be of benefit to you. If your Bibles aren't already open to Luke chapter 6, I ask that you'll turn them there now. Uh, That's going to be the foundation uh, or at least starting place of our our study today. Luke chapter 6. As Christians, we know that the Lord desires for us and expects us to reflect his character to the world around us. We are intended to bear the fruits of the Spirit. As Christians, we are to treat others with love, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, with compassion and and consideration. And I, I think on our good days, we might have a pretty easy time doing that. We don't have too much trouble exhibiting those characteristics. But there are hard days as well. And I'm afraid that Satan sometimes convinces us that when others sin against us, when others treat us poorly and without consideration, when others say things that are hurtful and unloving, when others wound our pride or fail to appreciate us, or act in ways that we find offensive, then all of a sudden the rules change. And then we don't have to reflect God's character. Then we can kind of set the fruits of the Spirit aside, uh, and we don't have to treat others with the same love and consideration. And Satan tries to get us to to justify distancing ourselves from others, giving other people the, the cold shoulder, treating them with a critical eye or an upturned nose, treating them the way that they have treated us. And that may be justified behavior in the eyes of the world, but it's certainly not in the eyes of God. Roger Shouse, in an article that he wrote, made the statement, there is never a right time to do wrong. There is never a right time uh, when hurting someone else is the right choice. Never. Do those who have wronged us need to repent? Yes, they do. Do they need to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit? Yes, they do too. But we're not talking about them today. We're talking about me. When I have been wronged, when I've been treated unfairly, when others have not treated me with love, have sinned against me, then what does God expect from me? The rules don't change. In fact, we have maybe even a a greater obligation in those moments to reflect God's character. So I want us to talk today about acting right when we've been wronged. What does God expect from us when others have treated us with a lack of love, lashed out in anger against us, disrespected us, or failed to appreciate us? When others have turned their back on us, excluded us, slandered us, or hurt us with their words? And as we look here in Luke chapter 6, I think what we can sum up the answer to this question with is that we need to love them. We, We can just say, love your enemies, we can stop the lesson there. And uh, that would be the answer. But Jesus expounds a little bit more upon that. And in fact, as we look at this sermon here in Luke chapter 6, over a third of the entire sermon uh, focuses on how we treat others who mistreat us, our enemies. And Jesus's basic answer, as we have said, is love your enemies. Love is the greatest command. Mark 12, verse 30 and 31, the greatest command, the first and second greatest command, are to love God with all our heart, our soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In Romans chapter 13, and also in Galatians 5, Paul talks about love as the fulfillment or summation of the law. In James chapter 2, love is called the royal law, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Sometimes we uh, talk about that same concept as the golden rule. And so we see how love is central to how we treat others, regardless of how they have treated us. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Not only do we need to love, we need to keep or maintain fervency in our love for others. A a, a passion, a strong and diligent acting love. You know, it's easy to feel fervent love for others who treat us well. Love is a natural reaction of appreciation. When somebody else has, has done good for me, when I appreciate the type of person that they are, when they are a major part of my life, I I may feel that love. It's easy to maintain that fervency and a love for somebody like that. Where it becomes the challenge to maintain fervent love for others is when they don't treat us that way. How do we keep and maintain that fervency when we've been wronged? Here it says, love covers a multitude of sins. Love will seek to cover the sins of others. We'll be willing to put those sins in the past. We'll be willing to work to mend the tear in the relationship that that sin has caused. It's easy to say love, but what does it mean? What will that look like? How is that practically accomplished within our lives? And so I want to talk about four areas in particular that we need to work to love our enemies, those who treat us wrongly. As we look here in Luke 6, the first thing that I want us to notice is here in verse 27. Luke 6 and verse 27, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. How do we love our enemies? One thing that we do is we do good. We serve. You know, there is... Nothing wrong with doing good deeds towards those who have done good to us. There's nothing wrong in doing good to express appreciation and gratitude for someone else. But Jesus calls us to something higher than that. We can't simply do good and serve those who have already done good to us. Perhaps we need to be even more diligent to pursue good deeds towards those who mistreat us. Think about in your life. the the good deeds that you seek to do. Think about the people that that is usually directed towards. Who are the people generally that you would write a card to when they're sick? Who are the people that that you might go and visit, that you might call on the phone to check up on, that you might uh, make a point to talk to uh, when you're in the assembly or, or elsewhere? who you might send flowers or cook a meal for or invite over to your house for supper, who you might try to encourage or offer to help. Are they just the people who you appreciate? The people who have done good to you? Well, what Jesus calls us to is that we need to make a point of doing those type of things for people who mistreat us. Those who treat us poorly. Often we try not to do these things, towards those who have offended us. We go out of our way to avoid talking to that person. We keep our distance. But these are the most important people that we need to seek to serve. Look at verse 32 and 33 of this chapter. Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners Yes, it's natural, and it's, it's right, and it's good, there's nothing wrong with it, that we do express gratitude in serving others, that we show appreciation to others. But Jesus calls us to something more. Jesus calls us to actively pursue serving those who don't deserve it. Because that's what he has done for us. Consider Romans chapter 12, verse 19 through 21. Romans 12, starting in verse 19, we read, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think sometimes we know that we shouldn't act in wrath towards people who have sinned against us or who have wronged us. We know that we shouldn't be hostile and hateful, but we think that we can just kind of be neutral and be kind of cold and distant. I'm not going to do anything actively evil against you, but I'm just not going to do anything. Well, that's not what God has called us to. No, not only should we not be hostile or hateful, we shouldn't be neutral. We shouldn't be cold and distant. We should be actively friendly and loving. Yes, if they have sinned, God will judge them. But that is his place. That's not mine. What's my place in this passage? My place is to feed him. My place is to give him a drink. My place is to do good towards him. And it says there, in so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean this is how you're really going to get revenge? You want to get revenge? Do this. I don't think that's the point being made here. It says God wants us to overcome evil with good. The the pain that we're causing here is a pain of conviction. That they might feel the guilt and shame of what they have done against you. And that their hostility might be burned away (laughs) by those coals heaped on there. It's not that we're seeking to overcome and overwhelm our enemies with evil and hostility and revenge. We're seeking to overwhelm our enemies with love that they might not be our enemies anymore. We might overcome evil with good. That our enemies, as Jason talked about, might become our friends. The more fervently our hearts burn with anger and outrage, the more fervently we should pursue expressions of love and service. That our enemies might be convicted, that they might feel guilt and shame, but ultimately that they might be changed. Jesus is our ultimate example of this. And we can see this in many different areas of Jesus' life. First and foremost, his crucifixion on the cross for us, his enemies. But I want us to consider for a moment John 13. John 13 tells us about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And I want you to notice the context that, that John, that the scene that John prepares for us here. Starting in verse 2, it says, During supper, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus knowing that God had put all things into his hand, that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured out water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. How does John set the scene for us here? Why is it that John begins this section by reminding us or telling us, revealing to us rather, that the devil had put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. And out of all the places that John could have told us that, why does he choose this point, right at the beginning of chapter 13, right before Jesus washes the disciples' feet? I think one reason is because Judas was one of those people whose feet was washed by Jesus. Can, can you imagine that? Jesus knowing full well, not simply something that Judas had done, and that He had kind of gotten past. No, but something that Judas was preparing to do against Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Can you imagine that interaction? Can you imagine what's going through Jesus' mind as he kneels down before Judas and washes his feet? What would be going through your mind if you knew that this individual was just about to betray you to your death? You think you might be tempted to kind of scrub his feet a little extra hard? No, but we see Jesus acting in service in humility, serving his enemies, the ones the one who is going to contribute to his crucifixion. This is our example. When somebody has wronged us even when they are in the act of wronging us we need to have the love of Jesus. We need to reach out to do good, to serve. That is our standard. That is our example. And if we go back to Luke chapter 6, we see that Jesus shows us even more than this. In Luke chapter 6 and in verse 28, we're told, verse 27, do good to those who hate you. Verse 28, bless those who curse you. What does it mean to, to bless someone? Is it just wishing them well? Uh, the word bless can mean that sometimes. But I think it's, it's, it's more than this. The, the, the Greek word is eulogia, which comes from two Greek words. The, the "you" meaning good, and the logos, meaning word. So a good word, if we were going to translate it very literally, we might say to speak well of. In fact, this is where our word eulogy comes from. What, what is a eulogy? That's where you speak good about something. Most of the time you're speaking a, a eulogy after somebody has passed away. And we don't want to speak ill of the dead, right? And so it doesn't matter if this person, you know, how many faults they had in their life. It doesn't matter, you know, how bad they were when, when, once they've died. And we're at this point where we're remembering them. We want to pick out all the good things. We want to to eulogize them by speaking about all of the good things. What Jesus is is saying here, and the fact that we need to bless rather than curse, is we need to speak well of our enemies. Regardless of what they've done to us, regardless of all the faults, we need to pick out the good just like you would if somebody had passed away and you're trying to pick out the good things to remember about them. We we need to eulogize our enemies before they're dead. (laughs) We need to pick out the good in others. Be benevolent instead of bitter in our thoughts and our words towards them. Again, in Romans chapter 12, in verse 10, we read, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor or in showing honor. The ESV says, Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, the world... Tells us that, that we want to outdo one another in gaining honor, right? We want to one up one, each other in uh, lifting ourselves up. But here, the Lord tells us that we need to outdo one another in showing honor. We need to turn it around and make it our goal to lift others up, even our enemies. You know, and I think we, we struggle with this even when it's not our enemies. We struggle with focusing on the good qualities in others. Many times we we are more in tune to our own good qualities and more in tune to the faults and the mistakes of others. We need to turn that around. We need to train ourselves to be more in tune to the good qualities in others. And especially when somebody has wronged us, our inclination... Can be to slander, to gossip, to tear down, but instead Jesus tells us to bless. Philippians chapter 2, in verse 3, we're told, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, or esteem others better than yourselves. Literally, hold others above ourselves. Put them on a pedestal. Put put your enemies on a pedestal. Focus on their good qualities. That's what Jesus calls us to. Not only in our words, but first of all, in our thinking. That's how we need to think about them. Instead of stewing over all the things that they've done wrong against us, we need to take some time to focus on the good things within them. That God created them in his image. That they're a soul in need of salvation. Even if those are the only things that we can come up with. That's what we need to focus on. And if we go back to Luke chapter 6, we see another thing closely related to this. In verse 28, he says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. We often pray for those who we are close to those whom we appreciate, those who who mean something to us, those are the people we're most often inclined to remember in our prayers. But Jesus instructs us that we need to make a point to remember our enemies in our prayers, that they need to be the people that show up in our prayers from day to day. We need to genuinely desire what is in their best interest to the point that we're bringing those requests before God that he might bless them, that he might change their hearts, that he might forgive them, heal their hurts, comfort their sorrows, and bless them abundantly. Now, if if you're a student of the Psalms, uh, you, you might say, well, what about those imprecatory prayers? What about those imprecatory Psalms? These the Psalms where the, the psalmist prays for judgment upon his enemies. Can't we do that? Well, and I think we'll see that there is a place for praying for uh, vindication, praying for deliverance, uh, praying that that God would bring our enemies' efforts to naught. But I want us to, to take a moment to turn back to a psalm, Psalm 35. This is... One of the psalms that we might consider an imprecatory psalm, the psalm of judgment, and here David, from the very first verse, we can see is praying for judgment upon his enemies. He says, "Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me; fight against those who fight against me." And we could continue to read here about how he is praying that God will come against his enemies, that God will conquer them, that God will keep their efforts from from coming to pass. But I want you to notice later on in this same psalm what David says. Look down in verse 12, beginning. Starting in verse 12, we read, They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. Verse 13, But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. Here David has come to the point of praying for judgment, that God might vindicate him, that God might deliver him in bringing judgment against his enemies. But in this very psalm, what does David say about his attitude towards them? This is not his first inclination. He didn't, when they first made themselves his enemies, he didn't first cry out to God to bring judgment upon them, like James and John wanting to bring fire upon the people of of Samaria. No, he first mourned for them, prayed for them, sought their good, sought to serve them, and when they didn't accept it, it came to a point where David is now praying, God, judge them. Vindicate me, deliver me from their efforts against me. So yes, there may be a place where we pray for for the judgment of those who set themselves against us. But that's not, that must not be our first inclination. Revenge was not David's goal here. He did not simply want to do harm to his enemies. That's not what this psalm is about. As 12 through 14 makes very clear, he would much rather that they be healed and restored. That was his primary prayer. And yet when they refused to change and continued to be hostile towards him, he prayed for deliverance and vindication through their defeat. Judgment was not simply an end within itself, but a means towards an end. And so before he ever prayed for judgment, he first prayed for their well-being. And that needs to be our attitude. We need to pray for those who hurt us. Pray for those who sin against us. Jesus, again, is our ultimate example. Luke 23, verse 34. Now, not washing the feet of somebody who's getting ready to betray him, but now as he is on the cross, as the nails have been driven into his hand, as the lifeblood is draining out of him, as they are mocking him and spitting, what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. If ever someone had reason to wish harm on his enemies, it would have been Jesus dying upon the cross. But he was more concerned about their eternal well-being than anything else. He was willing to give up his life so that they could be forgiven. That's our example. That's our standard. That's the type of love for our enemies that you and I are to exhibit. Do we pray for our enemies in that way? Do we have a genuine desire for their well-being, that God might change their heart, that God might work in their life and bring them towards him? But fourthly, if we are going to pray that God will forgive them, we need to be willing to forgive them ourselves. Look back in Luke chapter 6 once again. Luke chapter 6 and verse 36. We're told, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. And do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon." And you will be pardoned. Here, God is our standard of mercy. His willingness to forgive and the fullness of His forgiveness are the pattern that we are to follow. And if we want to be forgiven, if we want to be pardoned, what do we need to do? We need to pardon. Because God warns us that He will judge in the way that we have judged. That if we want him to forgive us, we need to exhibit that same type of forgiveness towards others. And we see that first of all in our willingness to forgive. If you want to turn your Bibles forward to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, I'll have it up on the screen as well. Verse 3 and 4. Here Jesus says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. In another passage in Matthew chapter 18, verse 22, Jesus told Peter that he was to forgive 70 times seven. And here in this context, he says seven times in one day. When we look at that, we think, well, there's no way that can be sincere These sins seven times in a day. But I don't think anywhere do we see Jesus telling us that we have to determine somebody's repentance before we extend forgiveness towards them. Now that doesn't mean that there won't be consequences for their sins. That doesn't mean that there won't be trust that needs to be mended, relationships that need to be rebuilt, uh, works befitting repentance that must follow. But as far as our willingness to wipe the slate clean, as far as our willingness to put those sins in the past and to allow somebody the opportunity to start over, to start from scratch, we need to be willing to extend forgiveness, to be eager to extend somebody uh, that opportunity to return. And here we do see in this passage that forgiveness is dependence upon repentance. That we can't truly forgive somebody that hasn't repented or hasn't at least expressed repentance. But does that mean that as long as they haven't come to me asking for forgiveness that I can harbor a grudge against them and that's okay? That that as long as they don't come and try to make things right, I can be bitter, I can wish them ill, I can set up a barrier between me and them. Well, no. No, we see that we need to have the type of attitude that we are seeking to forgive. Not that we are distancing ourselves all the way over here, and if you break through all these barriers and get to me and and express repentance, well, then I'll have to forgive you. No. What's Jesus' attitude? Jesus reaches out to his very last breath that his enemies might be forgiven. We need to be extending that, seeking others' repentance, seeking their restoration. Matthew chapter 18, if you want to turn your Bibles over there with me. Matthew 18 tells us what we need to do when somebody has sinned against us. Brother, let me say, I think 90%... (laughs) Or more of the problems that we often have among brethren could be solved if we would just follow this passage. Matthew 18, starting verse 15, it says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, if he doesn't listen, we're told in verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Brethren, this passage is not just a wise suggestion on how Christians should handle sin. This is a command. This is how we must deal with sin. And so if somebody has sinned against me, what is my responsibility? Is my responsibility to gossip about them, to go and talk to somebody else about it, to go to the evangelist or go to to somebody else? No, first and foremost, the first step is that I go to them and I talk with them about it. And it's not that I, I can as we said, you know, distance myself from them and say, well, they haven't repented, so I don't have to do anything about it. No, I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility, if I've seen sin in my brother's life, to go to them, to reach out to them, to seek their restoration. It doesn't say, if your brother has sinned, stand aloof, give him the cold shoulder until they sense the hurt that you feel, and then break through all those barriers to, to come and make things right with you. No, it says go to them in private and address that sin. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Earlier in Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, it talked about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You who are spiritual, you who have the Spirit of God within you, who are bearing the fruits of the Spirit, when you see somebody, when you see your brother who is caught up in some sin, restore him. So often it's easy to rebuke. It's very difficult to restore. But that needs to be our goal. And certainly rebuke is involved in that many times. God's Word is written uh, and is profitable for rebuke, for correction. But rebuke is not a goal within itself. No, the goal is restoration. The goal is to mend that relationship, to bring that brother or sister back from their sins. And so we need to have Jesus' attitude, we need to have God's attitude as we seek to forgive and extend forgiveness to others, reaching out that others might be restored. Just as Jesus did to his very last breath. And beyond that, We need to follow God's standard of forgiveness in the extent or the fullness of our forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32. We read, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Just as God in Christ has also forgiven forgiven you that's our standard. you know many times we, we want to do both here. We want to, to keep all of the wrath and the anger and the slander in the first part and still forgive. you know well, well I'll say I forgive you but I don't want to have anything to do with you and don't expect me to talk to you uh, and don't expect me to, to, to treat you with kindness or consideration. well no. Now we need to do away with all that and forgive as God has forgiven us. God's forgiveness means seeking full reconciliation, a renewal of fellowship, a rebuilding of relationships. When God forgives, he removes our transgressions. Uh, Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west. Micah 7 and verse 19 says, he cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God doesn't write down our sins and put them on his kitchen table and and, and leave them there just waiting for some time that he can pick them back up again. No, it says he cast them into the depths of the sea. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12 says that God remembers our sins no more. He wipes them away. He blots them out. He keeps no record of them. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5, Love does not take into account wrongs, suffering. And so as we seek to forgive others, that is our standard. That doesn't mean there aren't consequences for sin. That doesn't mean there aren't uh, trust and relationships that have to be rebuilt. But we need to give people an opportunity to start again. We need to clean the slate, put those sins in the past. We must fully reconcile and restore with our brethren. Blot out the sins from the record, cast them away, remember them no more. because That is what God has done for us. And so, brethren, how do we treat those who have wronged us, those who sin against us? Do we suspend the rules when it comes to those relationships? Now, all the more we need to be seeking to show love to those people, to do good, to bless, speak well, of, to pray. To seek forgiveness. That's what it means to love our enemies. To act rightly to those who have wronged us. And that is what God expects from us. Remember that we were once the enemies of God. Many times when we we look at that and we look at what other people have done to us, we think, well, how in the world could I ever do that? How in the world could I ever treat them that way? How in the the world could I I act that way towards somebody who has caused such hurt? Well, think about what God did for you. What God did for me. Think about Jesus dying upon the cross. Our sins that put the nails into his hands. Our sins that are the reason that he shed his blood. We were the enemies of God. We didn't deserve love. We didn't deserve blessing. We didn't deserve forgiveness. But he gave it at the price of his own son's blood. And he continues to give it to those who fall short. If we are only willing to repent, to return, to come back to him. Maybe you're convicted today that you've not been reflecting God's character in your life. Maybe you're convicted that... This does not describe your actions towards others. Won't you make a change today? By God's grace and by his strength, you can love others the way that God has loved you. Maybe you're convicted today that you're an enemy of God. That you haven't returned to him. God wants to be reconciled with you. He doesn't want you to be his enemy. He doesn't want to bring judgment upon you. He wants you to be restored. But make no mistake about it. If you refuse to turn to him, if you refuse to make your life right with him, God will judge. God is a righteous creator. Are you willing to turn back to him today? Are you willing to receive the gift of salvation that he has provided for you? If you're willing to repent to leave your old life behind, to confess your belief in Jesus as the Son of God, you can bury the old man of sin in baptism. He can be dead and gone. By God's grace, you can be raised to walk in newness of life, or restore a restored relationship with Him, His Spirit within you. Do you need to make that commitment? Do you need to make that change today? If there's anyone here who needs to make some public change, who needs to, to repent, who needs to turn their life over to the Lord, We want to help you in any way that we can. If you are subject to the Lord's invitation, won't you please let us know at this time as we sing?